Hi listeners, it's Masha Mokutonina, a producer on Masters of Scale. I spend a large part of my day carefully crafting emails, composing documents and endlessly responding to messages. Which is why I am such a big fan of Grammarly, the secure AI writing partner I use on a daily basis. Whether it's reaching out to high-profile guests or coordinating logistics with the production team, I use Grammarly to adjust my writing to different audiences while maintaining the brand voice of Masters of Scale. Grammarly helps spot redundancies and clean up sentences that are unnecessarily wordy, verbose, long-winded and repetitive. Like this one. Grammarly's AI prompts help guide my writing process, personalizing content based on context as well as making tone adjustments intuitively. It doesn't just help me generate more content, it helps me generate better content. Amazingly, Grammarly works seamlessly across my email, Slack, and over 500,000 apps and websites, so there is no cutting, pasting, or context switching needed. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster and hit their goals while keeping their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Often the word culture, it's like, you know, as humans, we come up with these words, metaverse, and, you know, and not everybody knows exactly what they mean. And, and so, but culture is kind of one of those words. When you have a team whose values are aligned and they trust each other, and it's just natural handoffs. But then when you have that incredible foundation of trust, it just unlocks the creative thinking. It unlocks the innovation. Something strange. These are the physicists. And I go, okay. This is why we have physicists. And that was the beginning of that crisis. So I learned something. Do not commit cultural faux pas. Bill Gates said, spend 80% of your time on 80% of your revenue. I had five hours of note pages of advice of what to do. So I'm sitting there and this guy, he's like brilliant. And I go, stop. Give me the list of the 10 smartest people in the company. The first gentleman comes in and he's white, as a sheet. I've never seen someone so upset. And I thought, well, maybe this is like culture. The other thing I learned, you only have six to nine months to change the culture of a company before you're stuck with it. I didn't know the company. I wanted to understand what the company thought. So we crowdsource a good bit of our culture, bottoms up, because the company really wants to separate itself from the past. I'll give a little bit of an anti-lesson call. Ultimately, don't try to be someone else. Be authentic to yourself. I started booking kind of walk the halls time. And I started walking the halls and it was so awkward. Like it was, you know, I'd be like, what are you doing? Hey listeners, this is Masters of Scale Rapid Response host, Bob Safian. Today we have a very special episode that's straight from the inaugural Masters of Scale Summit that took place in San Francisco at the Presidio campus. I hosted a roundtable coffee shop style conversation around the question, how do you build and rebuild a great culture? We gathered three legendary culture setters for the first time to share their insights. Angela Arendt revolutionized Burberry's culture and reinvented Apple's retail operations. Eric Schmidt, who was Google's first outside CEO, scaled the company to new heights. And Uber's current CEO, Dara Kashrashahi, completely turned around Uber's much-watched culture. 
This conversation was recorded in the morning in front of a live audience during a session titled Move Fast, Pivot Faster. We hope you enjoy this first of what will be many lessons from the Masters of Scale Summit in the weeks and months to come. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, so, so I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. Please welcome them to the stage. Make them feel like we know they're welcome. All right. So just so you know, during that exercise, like, they were the last ones to stop talking. So... I'm pretty sure this is going to go pretty smoothly. Welcome to the Masters of Scale Cafe. We have, we have, our, we have our coffee here. You know, it's, it's early in the day, right? It's, it's breakfast. And you know why we're at a breakfast table, right? Because culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? We, we've, heard, we've heard this line, right? That's good. Well done. That's right? good. It's, uh, Peter Drucker is who it's attributed to, although it's not actually proven that it's Peter Drucker that it came from. And I was actually at a, an event where there were two CEOs who uh, got into an argument over which one of them uh, came up with it. N- none, of, none of these three here. But, uh, so everyone wants a piece of this, of this culture conversation. You all have been, in, as, as June said, been in the center of, of culture. What we're going to try to do here to keep it fluid is uh, over coffee, people usually tell stories. So uh, we're going to start with a story and ask each of you to tell a story, and then talk about it a little bit, and then we'll each do stories in turns. We'll do three rounds of this. Is that okay? So, Angela, do you want to start? Do you have a, a story about culture at, at Burberry or at Apple that was particularly evocative for you, memorable? I was leaving Burberry and going to Apple, and, and of course, they left six months in between, and so a lot of time for the 60,000 employees to really you know, kind of figure out who I was and why this girl from fashion was coming in, et cetera, and, and, a, and a lot of comments on how I was going to flip everything and change everything, and so I literally started my first week, and the head of HR and the head of PR, they bring me this email, and they're like, would you sign this, and we're going to translate it into 30 languages and send it out to all the employees. It's like, we're in a YouTube, Instagram, WeChat world, and I'm going to send an email. And at Burberry, we had done videos every week, and so I said, we're going to do a video. And they're like, okay, well, we have a studio over here, hair, make. I'm like, no, 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 no. YouTube videos don't have studio lighting and hair and makeup. This has got to be authentic. We'll do it in my office with an iPhone. It's going to be three minutes, one take, three thoughts, just a thank you. We're going to turn ourselves inside out because I, you need to tell us what Apple needs to be doing more of in your community. You have a voice and we want to hear you, but we didn't have the mechanisms. Shooting the video, halfway through, my phone rings, and it's my youngest daughter. I just picked it up. You okay? Yeah, great. I'll call you back in two seconds. Finish the video. Now, this is Apple. Everything has to be perfect. And, and I said, no, send it out. And it was a bit of a battle. I said, one take. It has to be authentic. So they sent it out. And literally the next couple of days, thousands of emails, thanking them for communicating on video because they could feel me, thanking me for taking my daughter's call 
<laughs> because it proved I was a human. But it helped set the culture. It helped galvanize the teams and make them realize, I'm just like they are. I'm just a part of the team. So as you guys hear the story, is there a, a thought, an insight, a question, whatever that you... I, I think for me, it, it reminds me of a lot of conversations I've had with my leadership team, which is, there's a distinction between management and leadership, right? Management's about the head. You, I might be someone's manager because of the org chart, mm -hmm. but leadership can come from any place, right? Leadership is about the heart. And, and it reminds me of the authenticity that you bring, Vic, was the leadership style one that was more about the head and then you had to bring the heart into it or did that play into how you thought about culture change? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I always said that I thanked Steve for me turning around Burberry because we were the first to buy the iPads and, and digitize everything in the stores, et cetera. So I was a pretty good student on the company and very quickly I learned that all of those retail employees, they just revered Steve and he told them they weren't allowed to sell that their job was to enrich lives and they needed to do it through the lens of education through his products. And so I knew that that culture you know, already existed. And so I just honored it. I just said that I'm only gonna pick up where he left off and take it to the next level because I wanna make him proud. And so I think when you're creating a culture, you know, it's different if you're a founder, but when you walk into something so big and so perfect and so successful, it's not about me, it's about me becoming a part of it and just evolving it and making it better. Eric, do you have I, uh, I wrote a book about Bill Campbell, my coach. You guys knew yes, Bill yes. both well. And um, he spent half of his time working with us, but what he really did is he fulfilled the human mission that we as executives kept forgetting. And I, what I learned from Bill is you have to actually spend some time on this. So now what has happened is there's been this uh, view that you should bring your whole self to work, and now we're being forced to crawl that back because your whole self is maybe not what we want in work. <laughs> and so I think that the, 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 the story you told is exactly correct, but you could imagine variants of it which would be not correct. And we're navigating a new world of that perception. Mm. Did you struggle with that about how far you go? How much you bring or show of yourself? You know, no, because I, you know, again, I took the job at an older stage in life. I wasn't a kid. And, and luckily I had done a couple of things before Apple that, that had turned out pretty good. And so you learn, you know, and my thing is, I always say the higher up you go, the more authentic and the more human you need to be, where I think it's often the opposite, you know, and ego kicks in. And it's like you said, it's not about managing. It's about inspiring and encouraging. And I've always said, I'm just the enabler. I'm the connector. I just bring in incredible people. We build a trusting relationship and then they're empowered to go. I'm not the smartest tool in the shed. And, and the universal law of management I've seen is the higher up you are in the organization, the less you really know about what's going on, Absolutely. right? Like everyone Absolutely. talks to you in paragraphs and there's a <laughs> beginning and a middle and an end and, they're, and, and they prep, you know, their prep sessions for the prep <laughs> sessions. So I, I think you're absolutely right, which is the only way to get an organization to be authentic with you is if you take the first step and be completely authentic and transparent because everyone's got a good BS meter, right? And if you as a leader are BSing your team, they're gonna BS you right back. So I think that authentic leadership and really opening up to them, it's hugely yeah, And especially when you're doing with 60,000 people around the world. This was long before this hybrid thing we talk about, right? We were already hybrid, any global business, right? 
So, uh, Dara, you, you, uh, I'm curious about whether you have a story, because you're, you're mentioning sort of whether you get all the information you need. You came into Uber and, you, you know, there were cultural challenges. Is, yes. is there a yes. story that, that you yeah. have for us? <laughs> yeah. this, this is only for half an hour. Let's, uh, <laughs> Let's we'll, make the we'll list. See. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, you know, for me, one is that we're still going through that cultural journey. So we're not done by a long shot. And I think that you can never say, hey, put a pin in it, we're done. The, the minute you're done, like, you're done. You're, you're in a really bad spot, actually, I think. But, but for me, one story that stands out was uh, weekly all hands. We do weekly all hands in front of all employees, and, and we answer a bunch of questions. And Uber, of course, was this enormously successful company that ran into real cultural issues and was trying to relate to that. Because when I met the team, it's a group of people who really wanted to have terrific impact. You know, they, these were not bad people by any means. And there was a lot of the culture that was great, but then some issues that were problematic. And at this all hands, a question that was voted up was, what are we going to do about our PR problem? You know, we were in the news constantly about an issue, one issue after the other. And I got up in front of the company, and I said, listen, we don't have a PR problem. We've got an us problem. Like, first we have to fix ourselves, how we act, who we promote, et cetera, then the PR can follow because ultimately, especially in this world, the substance always comes out. You can't pretend anymore. So I think that was a pretty important moment where I said those words in front of the company and that allowed me, that opened the door for us to start making some significant changes. But we are still on the journey. We've got a long way to go. Mm. Eric, what are you thinking hearing this story from Dar? The problem that you were doing is a turnaround, whether yes. you called it a turnaround or not. And turnarounds are just different, right? And you have to get everyone's attention on the short term. You need to make clear what the goals are, and you need to deal with all the people issues, which you undoubtedly inherited. And I think that your example is just one of the 20 things you got to get right, which, of course, you did. Boom, 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 boom. Right. It's a real test of leadership. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a, a question sometimes too about like, what, what are the culture changes and what are the people changes? Like, are there people you have to move or oh, yeah. do you just have to adjust the environment so those people operate in a different area? And I don't know how you answer that question. It, it's actually funny. One of my favorite pieces of advice, and this is going to sound pretty twisted, I, uh, of uh, one of my mentors, I, when I got a new job, I said, what's the first thing I should do? Uh, he said, fire someone. And what he meant was that's when people start taking you seriously. You know, they, they, your team's going to kind of listen and they're going to go right back to what they were doing. The minute when you actually make painful changes is when the organization in a turnaround knows you're dead serious. By you're, the way, the, the number is 80% of the management team will turn over in a turnaround. It's just a question of what the rate is. How soon it happens. Yeah. We're at about 50-50, so we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's staying. No one else is going. So. This, is, this is not a threat. I mean, Angela, you had, you had a, to do a, a turnaround at, at Burberry and had some difficult kinds of conversations not unlike Doris talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think like you said, you know, you pull everybody together. You got to be transparent. And you can tell by looking in the audience at your top 100 who's going to be on your team and who's aligned to your strategy and vision, and not mine, by the way, the one the team had put together. And funny, my first offsite at Burberry, literally, you know, three days in, 
And I looked out in the audience and I said, I can tell you right now who's not on board. And I am very happy to give you an incredible package. will be a great reference for you, but everybody needs to be 100% in or we're not going to win. I'm curious as to what Eric said. For Uber, it was pretty clear as a turnaround. For coming into Apple from Burberry, it wasn't, did you have to state whether this was a turnaround or keep, keep going the way you're going, et cetera? Did you have to put that down? Yeah, no, no. I said the opposite. Okay. I said, again, the most successful retailer on the planet, five times the productivity of any of its closest peers. And so, no, I had to honor and respect what was built and say, might sound odd, but I don't know what to do. So together, you know, you're on the front line. And that's why we're going to put all these communications in place so you can tell us and you can problem solve. And so almost the opposite. And I said, I know there's things we can do better inside of the store. So what are those? And I know that well, we actually did a huge crowdsourcing exercise with, and, and, the, and the teams kept growing as we were rolling out more stores. And we said, in order to inform the new in-store experience, we asked them over the course of six months, what did they feel Apple should be doing more of in their community? And that's when that informed the whole experience. But it involved them. So then when you launched it, I mean, you could ramp up to, you know, 20, 30,000 sessions a week, and they owned it because they were part of creating it. Hi, listeners, it's Tucker Ligurski. As a researcher on Masters of Scale, I use the innovations of AI on a daily basis. And with an increasingly overcrowded market, it's hard to discern which ones are truly beneficial for my work, not to mention safe. That's where Grammarly comes in. My job requires me to prepare dozens of documents every day. And with Grammarly, I'm able to make my dossiers and research documents clear, more direct, and more concise. In fact, I recently discovered that Grammarly users spend 66% less time editing content, which is a huge advantage since our most precious resource is undoubtedly time. What I love about Grammarly is its commitment to responsible AI. My team works tirelessly to produce top-quality podcasts, and it's vital that we keep our data secure. Grammarly has been around for 14 years and has maintained a business model dedicated to never selling your data, which means you can trust it with your most sensitive information. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster and hit their goals while keeping their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Before the break, we heard highlights from the first ever Masters of Scale Summit about what it takes to build and rebuild a culture. Uber's current CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, Google's former CEO, Eric Schmidt, and Burberry's former CEO and Apple retail chief, Angela Arantz, swapped stories and insights about key culture creation moments. Now we dig a layer deeper as Eric shares a culture faux pas he made with one of his earlier companies, Dara shares what he calls an anti-lesson, and Angela talks about understanding the personality of your company. Eric, you, you asked Dara a question and sort of identifying that this is, as a turnaround, it's different. So what's different when you're building? Yeah, I don't know well, if there's a story you have well, or well, just let me tell Let me tell a turnaround story because I think it's, it's very much consistent with this. So a long time ago, I, I was recruited to be CEO of Novell and Novell was headquartered in Utah, culturally extremely different from where we are today. I mean, trust me, very different. <laughs> and I, you know, I was sort of naive but well-meaning. So I show up and I sort of meet everybody and I ask for advice. And everyone's very generous. Bill Gates said, spend 80% of your time on 80% of your revenue. Good advice. Um, Jim Barksdale said, if it's a snake, kill it. He had a whole bunch of Texas sayings that were very funny. Um, <laughs> 
And, and what I did is I took a notebook and I wrote everything down. And I found myself on you know, one of these United flights and coach next to somebody who wanted to give me lots of advice. I had five hours of note pages of advice of what to do. People were really helpful. So here I am, and I start meeting people and so forth, all sorts of problems in the company. And the company at the time had a little shuttle, you know, knee-to-knee seats going from Utah to San Jose. And I find myself, and somebody had said, because I said, I can't quite figure out who the really smart people are. Right, I'm just casually saying this because I'm an elitist, right? (laughs) And and, And my friend says, find one and they'll know the others. Okay, good advice. So I'm sitting there and this guy, right, he's like brilliant. And I go, stop, okay, give me the list of the 10 smartest people in the company. Okay, you know, and write down. And I put it in my little briefcase, go to the meeting, and I give it to my assistant. And I said, I want all of these people come to my office each for half an hour, and I just want to listen to them. Okay, so a week later, I'm in my office in Utah, and the first gentleman comes in, and he's white as a sheet. I've never seen someone so upset. And I thought, well, maybe this is like Utah culture. You know, they're just like, <laughs> it's like not a normal place, right? And, we're ch- and he's nervous. He's like really nervous. This is one of the smartest people. And I said, well, okay, I'm sorry to ask you, but why are you so upset? And he says, you're firing me. And I go, what? And he goes, in Novell, the way you're fired is it's a 30-minute appointment with no agenda. And I realized that I had notified the top 10 (laughs) smartest people in the company, right? So, 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 and I have a hundred examples of Eric's stupidity of that nature, but here's what I learned. What I learned is that culture does trump everything else, excuse the pun and um, the, the Trump part, not the culture part. <laughs> and the, the, you think you understand how people work, and you don't. Mm. And you have to take the time to listen. So at that point, I decided I would go get Utah training. And this is code for Mormon. And so I would sit down, and I would listen, and I would learn, and so forth, and actually work with them. And that produced a good outcome. The other thing I learned, and this is from Lou Gerstner, who, said, who had written a whole book on this, and his IBM turnaround, he said, you only have six to nine months to change the culture of a company before you're stuck with it. And when you and I mm. met, when you took over the job, I told you that. Yes. And you executed against that, whether you knew it or not. <laughs> it, was the, it was originally a Lou Gerstner principle. Once in a while, I listen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dara. But like, I, I'm curious, Dara, because like, culture comes from the bottom, but also you're put in place to kind of change it from the top. Yeah, like, how, yeah. how, do you, how do you balance those two things? You know, it, it's a tough balance. We actually, you were talking about crowdsourcing. We originally crowdsourced the new culture of the company because I had to move fast. Once in a while, I listened to Eric. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and we wanted it to be, I, I was a bit of a foreigner there, right? It, I, I didn't know the company. I wanted to understand what the company thought. So we crowdsourced a good bit of our culture, bottoms up, and for me, there was a great outcome, which is the culture very importantly stated what we weren't because the company really wanted to separate itself from the past. There were some parts of, of the culture, we make big bull bets, et cetera, that, that we retained. But at the same time, because it was crowdsourced, 
it didn't have a strong enough point of view, in my opinion. Because, you know, if you crowdsource, if you get the average of 20,000 people, what their opinions are, you kind of get to the average opinion. You're not getting the top 10. You're, you're, you're <laughs> not getting, you know, the really juicy stuff, what makes yeah. you different. So we've actually now revisited our cultural norms, and some of them we've kept. But I, I found that it's a combination of bottoms up, but then it does have to come top down as well. You've got to put your own stamp on the organization. I didn't have the permission to early on because Uber had such a strong culture, et cetera. Once I got there after a couple of years, I had the permission with my team. And now I think we're in a pretty good spot. But the, the journey keeps going. As you're talking about that, I'm, I'm reminded. So there's a, a book that uh, Ed Catmull, the founder of Pixar, wrote called Creativity, Inc. A few guys have, have read it. Terrific book. And I read it. And then when I was the editor of Fast Company, I was like, this is what I want to follow, right? And I try to sort of create this culture flywheel, you know, and then it would like drift back. And so I, I met Ed at one point and I said, so Ed, like, what am I doing wrong? You know, like, why, why? And he's like, and he starts laughing at me. He's like, no, you got to muck out the stalls like over and over. People go back. And so I'm curious for you guys, like how much of a culture is something that can be a flywheel and how much do you have to keep, you know, like just, you, you said you're only part of the way through, like just keep at it. Well, remember that people opt in, right? So you have selection bias. So you, are, you have the people who chose to come and the people who didn't like your culture are not there, right? So you have to always start with the premise that there's a reason why people are here, right? And you better validate it. And then you need to figure out how you want, and this is exactly what you said, you, then, and both you actually said, then you have to figure out what the, the touch points. One way to say this is to say, we like to win, right? And what is it going to take to win? And one of the things I learned from Larry and Sergey is to be impatient about that. Right. Whatever idea I had was not good enough. Whatever idea anybody else had was not good enough. It was always not good enough. And that drive for excellence is what leadership really is about. Mm. Okay. No, I was just going to say, and I think too, I agree 100%, but I think also as you're scaling, right? So Burberry was relatively small. And so as you scale and you're bringing in thousands of people a year, how do they know what that, of course you want to hire for it, but there's so many new people coming in. So we discovered at Burberry and at Apple that, that you actually had to document it. We brought in a cultural anthropologist to study everything that we had done. We doubled the business. We said we were going to do it again. What did we learn? What did we want to make sure gets embedded in onboarding, et cetera? So, so kind of the same thing at Apple. I mean, we did the, we did the same thing, but, but you know, there's a financial report, there's a supply report, there's an environmental report. So we actually created the first human responsibility report to share you know, what we were doing with this culture, how we were keeping this momentum. And that way, there was no ambiguity in terms of like expectations, performance, or otherwise. Let me give you an, a Google example in my first year. So at the time, the company was in one building, and I had an 8 by 12 office, and I had a little desk and, and a door to the office. And one day I walk in and someone has moved into my office, okay, with me. And I said, hello. And he goes, hello. And I said, who are you? And I go, he goes, I'm Amit. And I said, what are you doing here? In a nice way. And he said, well, I was uh, one of the five people in the office across the hallway. And you're never here, so I just moved myself. <laughs> now, <laughs> because of my previous errors at Novell, I knew that this was a test, okay? Okay, and, and you know when you're being tested, it's like, I'm being tested. Think, Eric, think, okay? 
So I said, did anyone authorize that? In a nice way, did anyone authorize that? He said, sure. Wayne Rosing, who's the VP of engineering, said, sure, move into the CEO's office. And I said, okay, I'm screwed. <laughs> so anyway, so he's, he puts his headphones on and he's typing away doing whatever. <laughs> and so and he was, you know, he's an engineer, he doesn't say anything, perfectly fine roommate, uh, works all the time. So I'm sitting there and I'm, and I'm on the phone with Omid, who was the VP of sales at the time. And I'm having this conversation and Omid is saying, I think that the, the, the revenue numbers at the time were about 100 million a quarter. And he said, I think we can get to uh, 120. And I said, I think you're, you're sandbagging, Omid. I think you can, you know, you know what the technical term, sandbagging. We ultimately gave Omid a sandbag to stand on to make his presentation, <laughs> which I have a picture of, which is hilarious. But in any case, I'm sitting there talking to him and he said, yeah. And so uh, it's an unsuccessful phone call. So I hang up the phone and Amit next to me takes off his headphones and says, I know the revenue numbers. And I go, I knew you were listening into my phone calls. <laughs> so I said, what's the revenue number? And he, and he goes, it's 142 million. And I said, well, how do you know? I said, I do revenue analytics. <laughs> and I thought, maybe I should have talked to my office mate. So I call Omid, the sales guy, and I say, Omid, you're sandbagging. You have another 12 million in the bag. You just haven't found it yet. He said, how do you know? And he said, I'm not telling you. <laughs> so all of a sudden, and by the way, the revenue number really was 142 million. Uh, I discovered having the chief revenue analytics guy in my office at all times <laughs> is a great idea. We... We stick, right? Running a small company. So, note to self. Note to self. So the interesting story is that we stayed. We actually liked each other so much that he stayed as my office mate until we were a public company where I couldn't violate the, the various SEC laws. So what I... <laughs> right? So then I thought, how can I get the same thing? And so I had a small office and I had a larger office and I put four physicists next to me. And I said, your job is to notice something strange and you run into my office. So in 2008, whatever it is, the May of 2008 or nine, whichever the, the month and year was, they run in and they say, something strange. These are the physicists. And I go, okay, this is why we have physicists. And that was the beginning of that crisis. So I learned something, which was keeping these kinds of people around and close to you is really helpful. And plus, you know, if he moves in, don't say, what the f***? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I Do mean, not commit cultural faux pas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the fascinating things about culture is, right, like every organization has a culture, right? Some of it's articulated, some of it's by design, some of it's intentional, but some of it is just evolves. I mean, you know, and you don't necessarily know where it comes from. I know we, we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask each of you, do you have a lesson for the folks out here, the folks who are watching, about something that when, you know, when they get back to their office, you know, that they should do that will improve their organization's culture, something they should keep in mind, something they should act on now? I'll give a little bit of an anti-lesson, call it, which is you can, it goes to all the advice that you took. You, you can take all the advice, but ultimately, don't try to be someone else. Be authentic to yourself. I still remember, I, I read a, I think it was like a Forbes article about this manager who uh, walked the halls 
you know, he managed by walking the halls, and that's how he found out what was really going on at the company. I'm like, I'm going to walk the halls. So I started, and I'm pretty structured. I, I started booking kind of walk the halls time. And I started walking the halls, and it was so awkward. Like, it was, you know, I'd be like, what are you doing? You're like, I'm working. Like, get out of here. Or I'd like go into, you know, a conference room and dead silence, you know, how's it going, everyone? So I just started hating walking the halls. And my assistant, she like saw how much I hated it. So she, she took glee. She's like, darn, it's time to walk the halls, you know? <laughs> and so eventually, like, like listen, it, it profoundly didn't work for me. Now, I'm sure, you know, I would say walk the halls is good advice. But I do think it goes to what you started with, which is ultimately whatever you do, whatever advice you choose to take, whatever fits in with you, you've got to be authentic. And only if you're authentic can you then affect authentic change with an organization. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's funny because often the word culture, it's like, you know, as humans, we come up with these words, metaverse, and, you know, and, and not everybody knows exactly what they mean. And, and so, but culture is kind of one of those words. And so I just used to always say, it, you know, everybody has an individual personality, and it's simply the personality of the company. And to me, it's no different than the Warriors winning or a great rock band. It's, you know, when you have a team whose values are aligned and they trust each other and it's just natural handoffs. But then when you have that incredible foundation of trust, it just unlocks the creative thinking. It unlocks the innovation. And, you know, that's that old adage, success breeds success. So to me, it's just, you know, understand that the culture is it is a giant personality and it's living and breathing and goes up and down, but it is just constant, consistent, authentic communication and listening. I mean, and it's not your culture. Even if you're a founder, this thing will take on a life of its own and, you know, hold on for the ride and keep pace as things change. I mean, you know, just with technology, with everything, because they can't go home and live one way and come into your culture and live another way. And you said if a person in our audience goes back to the office, whatever, let's say they're doing a startup, the answer is simple. Hire the smartest people you possibly can and put up with them, right? Um, and we all understand what that means, right? But you really need them for competitive advantage. But let's say you have an established organization that you're, you're managing doing the best you can. The best way to do it is to say, are we at the state of the art? Are we using best practices? And then let them answer that question. What you discover is that your employees are all part of a network of people that you don't know. They actually know what else is going on, even if you don't. So if you just listen to them and say, okay, how do we get there? You end up with roughly the right outcome. Yeah. I do think on, on surrounding yourself with the smartest people, that, that is absolutely no regrets. And, and like you said, the smartest people in the organization have followership. So well anything said. that you do with yeah. them, et cetera, exactly. has, has echo effects. And I think on the cultural side, that can turn if the smartest person in the organization isn't aligned with you culturally, mm. that can actually be pretty dangerous. Mm. And so yep. as an organization grows, you make allowances certainly for your most talented people. But if from a cultural standpoint, they're not aligned with you, that can be quite destructive. And at a certain point, you... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's exactly right. Yeah. Well, guys, I have, I, I have a whole bunch of other questions to ask you. And I've loved being here at the Master Scale Cafe with you, but they have not brought us our breakfast food yet. You know, and so I think maybe we should go eat somewhere else. Um, this, has been, uh, this has been great. I'm sorry that we're out of time. Thanks so much for Thanks doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, everybody.
Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. Our head of content and production is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Gray, Marie McCoy Thompson, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligurski, and Holly Bondi. Our editor-at-large is Bob Safian. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, Aria Finger, Zayda Sapieva, Greg Beato, Adam Heiner, Colin Howarth, Willem Crowles, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Sammy Aputa, Anna Pisano, Sarah Tartar, Lear Ceramentis, Charlie Meneses, Chinime Ezequena, Emily McManus, and Mina Kurosawa. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at masterscale.com slash membership.